Now, take your copies of God's Word and open them to the Gospel of Luke, the fifth chapter. We're going to be considering an encounter that Jesus has with the scribes and Pharisees. And it's actually the first of five encounters where the scribes and Pharisees are questioning Jesus' action or his disciples' actions. And in this questioning of Jesus, their intention is not to try and know Jesus better. Their intention is to attack, to confront. They are undermining what Jesus is doing. So you follow along as I read, starting in verse 17 of the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do, you, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. When I was 10 years old, I needed glasses but was not aware that I needed glasses. My vision was unclear and everything in my world was fuzzy. I would sit at the front of the classroom attempting to try and and see the board. I would squint to try and make the fuzzy shapes on the board that the teacher had written down uh, come into focus. I suspect that I appeared quite aloof. I had real difficulty uh, reading facial expressions and so I probably didn't respond to people appropriately. And I very specifically recall, I had a friend, and he was quite an artist, and one day at recess, he is drawing during recess, and he's drawing a tree that is there at our elementary school. And I can, I can get close enough to his drawing to see all the intricacies. There's actually branches and twigs and shapes of leaves that he's drawn. And then I would look up and look at the same tree, and all I saw was a somewhat rectangular brown fuzzy blob and on top of that was a larger oval green fuzzy blob and I was confused I didn't understand why I didn't see things the way he did I thought the way I saw was normal but the reality is is that my unclear vision was perverting my understanding of the world 
My unclear vision perverted the way I saw things. In a very similar fashion, sin perverts our vision. It perverts the way we understand and see the world. And that is exactly what is occurring here in this text. The Pharisees, their understanding, their vision has been perverted by their sin. The, the scribes and Pharisees were the teachers of the law. They were the ones who studied God's word all day long. And they were the ones who were responsible to present God's word to the people. They were the ones who were anticipating and expecting a Messiah to come and lead them. And yet when they encounter Jesus, because sin has perverted their understanding of the world, they do not welcome the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They confront Him. Now, some here this morning... Sin may have so impacted your vision, the Bible even will reference it blinds us, that, that you do not claim to be a follower of Christ. You are someone who is outside of the kingdom of God. Some here this morning may be followers of Jesus Christ. They may be trusting in the, in the work of Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection, to make them right with God. And yet, even for those... Sin, at times, will still cover us and make our understanding of the world off. In this particular text that, that, that we read, oftentimes we believe that the real emphasis of the text is that a paralyzed man walked again. But I present to you today the emphasis of this text is that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God because He does work that only belongs to God. And so we are to trust and worship Him as God. Now what I want to do this morning is pull out of the text three ways where we see Jesus doing the work of God. And then I want to try and tease out of that what that calls us to today. If you look in the text, the first thing I want to point out to your attention is that Jesus is doing the work of God. So therefore, we are to trust and worship Him because Jesus is the one who forgives sins. Uh, in verse 17, we have like any story would be introduced. We have characters being introduced, and it describes Jesus teaching. And then scribes or Pharisees and teachers of the law come and are sitting there. And then we have this phrase that almost sort of feels a bit odd when you read the story. Look at the very end of verse 17. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now when we read that, that word, that English word heal, most likely we immediately go to an idea of physical healing. And if we're familiar with this particular story, we know or, or we go in our heads, oh yeah, Jesus is going to heal a paralyzed guy. But that Greek word that is translated by the English word heal has, has different connotations to it. It certainly means healing physically. But it also has in it the idea of making something whole, bringing something to salvation. In essence, spiritual healing. So when, when we read, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal, it certainly means physical healing, 
But it also is telling us that it is in Jesus that we find spiritual healing. Now, we go on down in the text and um, you find the, the story unfolding. Jesus is teaching and all of a sudden the roof of the building begins to be torn apart and friends of the paralyzed man are lowering him down into the midst of Jesus because they desire for Jesus to heal him, physically heal him, make his paralyzed legs work again. And so Jesus sees their faith, and here's what he says in verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus does not tell this man, Wow, I'm very impressed with your faith. You should pray to God and ask God to forgive your sins. No, Jesus, with the authority that is his because he is God in the flesh, says, Your sins are forgiven you. He is doing the work of God. Another place that we actually see this is the Pharisees begin to think in their minds, to say in their minds, wait a minute, Jesus can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. And it's interesting, when Jesus confronts them, he doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, gentlemen, you got it wrong. I can also forgive sins. No, in essence, he implies there that their thinking is right. Only God can forgive sins. Their problem is they don't see because sin has perverted their understanding of reality. They don't see that Jesus is God and therefore can forgive sins. In, uh, in, in, in any presidential term, toward the end of it, a president typically will grant pardons. Now here's how this works. In our Constitution, the office of the president is given the authority to grant pardons. So a criminal, a person who has broken the law of the land, who has gone through the legal system and has been found guilty and is now serving a sentence to pay their debt to society, will, will write the office of the president and request, would you pardon me? And the president will look at that and decide, yes, I will. The office of the president has the authority to say, while you might be guilty, I am going to excuse you from fulfilling the rest of your debt to society. In a same manner, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has the authority to forgive sins because our sin is an offense to God. He is the one who has the authority to forgive. Now, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for, for our lives, for this afternoon and next week? I, I want to try and apply this and tease out three different ideas around this. In, in my role as a pastor here at Grace of Ann, I have the privilege to come alongside people and, and hear their story and, and try and biblically help them understand what, what a Christian life looks like. And one of the things that I encounter regularly is an individual who, who has faith that, that the work that Jesus has done on the cross provides forgiveness for their sins. But oftentimes there is a particular sin that they just, they just don't think that God could really forgive them for that. Their sin is too great. It's too grievous. 
my brother and sister in Christ. Stop it. What you in essence are saying is, I'm sorry, but my sin is so great, it surpasses the authority and ability of God to forgive sins. I'm sorry, but the work of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh who lived a sinless, perfect life and willingly allowed himself to be murdered on a cross so that all the wrath due me was, was burned up on him. I'm sorry, but that really just isn't enough. No, that is sin perverting your understanding of reality. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, Paul is able to pen in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My brother and my sister in Christ, find rest in Jesus and stop holding on to a particular sin. Secondly, um, I think there's some application here from the standpoint that it's interesting what Jesus does first with this paralyzed man. Notice, uh, and, and most likely it's implied in the text, everybody in the room, as they tear the back the tiles and they lower a man to the floor, everybody in the room understands that this man is looking to have his paralyzed legs work again. And I, I personally think this is somewhat of God's humor. Jesus looks and sees their faith and he says, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Can you imagine? I think if I was in that setting, I would be like, Excuse me, um, Jesus, um, he, he wants his legs to work. Um, and notice what, what Jesus is conveying to us. I think he is, he is teaching us the priority that God has in the universe. And what he essence is saying is the eternal far outweighs the temporal. My legs working are certainly important. But what is of a greater significance is the state of my soul and where will I spend eternity? So the question for us this morning is, do our priorities match God's priorities? Or has sin perverted the way we understand and see the world? Let me, let me present a few diagnostic questions for you to answer. I've answered them. Do, do you spend more time, or, or com- compare and contrast the amount of time and energy you spend on your appearance versus that you spend on the state of your soul? Does your priority match the priority that Jesus has indicated? Or how about this? If you're a parent, which, which, is, which is of a greater priority to you? The eternal state of your child's soul or whether or not they're successful in this temporary life? Do our priorities match the priorities of Jesus? All right, thirdly, one of the things that, um, that I think comes out in, in the reality that Jesus is God and he forgives sins I oftentimes find myself, I see this in my own life, and I see it in other believers, we, we long to be, to be experiencing God in a profound, deep way. We, we, we long to see God act and work miraculously in our lives. We, we think it would be incredible to be a paralyzed, not a paralyzed man, but a paralyzed man that's healed by God. 
And so often, I think what's occurring is we as believers, again, sin has perverted our understanding of reality. Do you not realize that you are a miracle? Is it not a miracle for a spiritually dead person to be made alive spiritually through the finished work of Jesus Christ? I think sometimes we lose sight of the miracle of salvation and what God has done for us, what he died to accomplish. All right, secondly, um, one of the ways that we see that Jesus is God, we see him doing work of God, and so therefore we must trust and worship him, is in the fact that he has power over the material world. Now, there's really two places in this text where we see that. Uh, We'll get to the second one, the healing. The first one is in he knows and reads the thoughts of the Pharisees. The text indicates that the Pharisees are not speaking these questions out loud when when they say in verse 21... Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, it says Jesus perceives their thoughts. He knows their thoughts. He knows the questions that are occurring in their mind. He knows them all. That's the first place where you see him having power over the material world. He does what we do not. He reads minds. He knows thoughts. And then secondly, he is able to heal Part of me would love to see something like this. But here we have a paralyzed man. His legs are probably thin and weak. And Jesus says in verse 24, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And in verse 25, it tells us, and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. Here we see Jesus demonstrating the fact that he is God in the flesh because he has power over the material world. In, um, in Acts chapter 14, Paul the apostle is in a town called Lystra. And uh, while he's there, there's a man who has crippled feet. And in the name of Jesus, his feet are healed. Paul speaks that over the man and his crippled feet are healed and he's able to walk. And it's very interesting, the people of Lystra respond by getting very excited. And they immediately begin to say to Paul, you are a god. And of course Paul has to correct that and and tell them, no, no, I'm not a god. I did this in the name of Jesus. Jesus is God. But My point here in the illustration is the people of Lystra understand and grasp that power over the material world is work that belongs to deity. We, even in our independent and scientific culture, we understand that. We get that. That power over the material world is a sign of deity. Now, what, is this, what does this call us to? What does it mean? Well, a couple things. Jesus knows your thoughts. The good, the bad, the ugly. Jesus knows our thoughts before we even speak them. 
Jesus knows all that we have done and everything that we will do. So why do we not live a life of honest confession before our Savior? I see see where sin perverts my own understanding. And I actually at times, and therefore I suspect you do also, I actually at times think that Jesus won't know. I'm, I'm like a silly little two-year-old that thinks I can fool the adult. Jesus knows, so let's live a life of honest confession before him. Let's confess our sin. Let's lean on him. Let's live honestly before him. The other thing that I think this applies to our lives is, is we see Jesus backing up his statements with action. You know, uh, earlier in in the text, in verse 20, he conveys to this man that his sins are forgiven. And then you have this scenario where the scribes and Pharisees are questioning things in their minds, and, and he basically confronts them, and he says, which is easier, um, saying your sins are forgiven or telling a person to get up and walk? And he basically confronts them and backs his words up with actions. He heals the man to take away any doubt whatsoever that exists in their minds. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, it means this. He backs up his, action, or his words with actions too. And the action is his willing sacrifice on a cross. He screams at us, I am for you, I am with you. And if you have some doubt about that, look at what I've done. I lived a perfect, sinless life. I allowed myself to be falsely accused, beaten, and murdered on a cross so that the wrath of God justly do you for your sins would be on me. That's the action that Jesus does that backs up his words. So when we read in God's word and Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You can trust that because his actions on the cross back it up. When when Jesus says to us, do not worry over this life. Do not worry what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. His actions on the cross back that up and we can do just that, not worry. When Jesus tells us to go to all the nations and to proclaim his gospel and to baptize and disciple, he says, all authority is mine. We can do that with confidence because of the action of his work on the cross. All right, lastly, we see Jesus doing the work of God in the fact that he elicits worship from people. Look here in verse um, 26. Jesus has spoken, man, your sins are forgiven you. He has confronted the uh, Pharisees and the scribes, and he has healed the man's paralyzed legs. And in verse 26, we read, And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. 
Four responses come out of the people. And let me even point out, it says all the people. That includes the men who lowered the paralyzed man. It includes anybody in that room. It includes the scribes and the Pharisees. The men who were questioning, confronting Jesus. All present there responded with four elements of worship. There was amazement. That is really indicating this emotional response of of shock and excitement all mixed together. Um, There's a response of glorifying God. Um, That is ascribing worth to him, to God, thanking him. Then there's this, this word awe. And it's a word in English that I think has lost some of its emphasis. But it has a real strong emphasis of fear attached to it. A reverent fear. The people are responding in a reverent fear. They know that they've been in the presence of something beyond. And then they verbalize, we have seen extraordinary things today. They're they're verbalizing that they have seen things that are beyond human ability this day. They are worshiping. When you go back into the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, uh, Moses has led the Israelites to Mount Sinai. And God has descended upon Mount Sinai. And there's thunder and, and clouds and rumblings. And the Israelites look at Moses and they say to him, uh, this is now in chapter 20, I believe, of Exodus. They say, Moses, you speak to us. We don't want God speaking to us. There is a sense of awe, of fear, of reverence, of worship. And they realize that there is something beyond human achievement happening here. We see the exact same thing occurring right here, which speaks to Jesus' deity and why we can trust and worship him. So again, what what does this call us to? One of the things that that I think sin perverts in our understanding is that sometimes we basically approach a day with a ho-hum attitude. We're not that captivated with God and what He's doing. Well, God hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't changed. What's changed is sin has perverted our understanding and we do not see the miraculous the incredible, the awe, the inspiring, the amazing realities of what God has done in our lives through Christ and what He does day in and day out. If you've been around me or in my class at any time or ever heard me, you're going you're gonna to recognize what I'm about to say. I learned from a woman that I worked with for a while. She would always say, if you're having trouble seeing God today, seeing His grace in your life, take a breath. <sighs> There he was in solid concrete form. Who do we think we are? Did we wake ourselves up today? No. Why, my brother and sister in Christ, do we not live out every day in worship, glorifying God for what he has done for us? He has saved us fully and completely in Christ. He has granted us every single thing we have. Now, in, in closing, I want to come back to my 10-year-old life and story. 
I want to come back to the fact that I needed glasses and I have parents that cared for me. And so what did they do? Well, they scheduled an appointment with me at an eye doctor. I go to the eye doctor. Uh, I grew up in East Memphis, so it's right there. His office is not there anymore, but it was uh, across the street from Eastgate Shopping Center, across Park Avenue. And he takes me back, and I go back there, and they do all the things to my eyes, and, you know, one or two, and choosing all the stuff and everything. Then he says, come with me. And he walks me to the front of his store. And there's a glass door, and I'm looking out over Park Avenue. And I can tell there's a sign somewhere in there, but I can't read the words on it. And I, and I see moving objects on the road, and I know those are cars, but I can't make out if there are people in them. I assume they are, because I know people drive cars. Um, I, I can't make out anything. I Really, all I see is sort of a fuzzy backdrop that I know is Eastgate Shopping Center. And this doctor stands directly behind me. He's almost touching my back. And he puts his arms out. And he begins to lower two pieces of glass, corrective lenses in front of my eyes. And my world instantaneously changed. All of a sudden, I could read the words on the sign. I saw people driving cars. Everything was different. I could make out that there were stores and shops across the street. The glasses cleared up my vision. And I saw the world for what it really was. That is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, invades our lives, everything changes. His grace makes me able to understand that He is the only God, the thrice holy God that I have offended through my sin. And that in Jesus Christ, I have full and complete forgiveness for all my sins. And never again... Ought we to see the world the same? May God's grace change all of our lives today. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. We thank you, Father, that in Christ we can have full and complete forgiveness. Would you help us all as your people to trust and worship you in Christ? And Father, if there are those here who who are outside of your kingdom, would your Holy Spirit begin to change their vision? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.